I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of some poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem or poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined very happily here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Arts Cafe by Piali Bhattacharya, writer, editor, teacher, whose short stories and essays have appeared in Plowshares, Lit Hub, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Geographic, and elsewhere, who has edited an anthology titled Good Girls Marry Doctors, South Asian American Daughters on Obedience and Rebellion, who's currently finishing work on her first novel. And I'm thrilled to say, Piali is a colleague of ours here at Penn, where she holds the position of writer-in-residence in the creative writing program, and by Josephine Naki Park, Joe Park, who has directed Penn's Asian American Studies program, teaches modern and contemporary American literature and culture with an emphasis on American poetry and Asian American literature, author of Apparitions of Asia, Modernist Forum, and Asian American Poetics in Cold War Friendships, Korea, Vietnam, and Asian American Literature, and co-editor of Asian American Literature and Translation, 1930-1965, published by Cambridge in 2021, not so long ago. Yay, congrats, with Victor Bascara. And by Timothy Yu, who joins us here, having made the trip from Madison, Wisconsin, where he is Martha Meyer Rank Bascom Professor of Poetry at the University of Wisconsin, author of Race and the Avant-Garde, Experimental and Asian American Poetry Since 1965, many essays and articles, including Form and Identity and Language Poetry and Asian American Poetry, and The Hand of a Chinese Master, Jose Garcia Villa, and Modernist Orientalism, and whose new book has recently been published by Oxford Diasporic Poetics, Asian Writing in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Tim, congratulations on the book. Thank you so and much, And thank you for making this trip to see us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really glad that you're here. And Joe Park, pal, great to see you. Thank you for galloping down the lane to be with us. My pleasure. And Piali, first time on Poem Talk. First time on Poem Talk. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, all of you. Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about Divya Victor's book, published by Nightboat Books in 2021. It's called Curb. We'll be focusing on four poems in this book. From a series under the title More Curbs, we'll be discussing Curb 3, Curb number 3, Curb 4, and Curb 5. And from later in the book, a poem called Frequency, Alka's Testimony. Our recordings of these selections were made specifically for this Poem Talk episode by Divya Victor and have been added to her Pen Sound page. So here now is Divya Victor reading from her book, Curb. Curb 3, Gold Coast Cafe, Hoboken, New Jersey. Pushed and pulled out the center 
An object described as a brick or a bat. Toward the building side of the sidewalk. He was a path described as from a bar to a car. Hit a few times. He remembered a man described as bald. Hitting a fence and he slumped to the ground. A sound made when a name falls from a face. To the ground. On September 27, 1987, Navroz Modi, a Zarashian, was beaten with bricks and bats by 11 youths who were chanting, Hindu, Hindu, as he was walking out of the Gold Coast Cafe with his friend, William Crawford. Modi died in hospital four days later of trauma to the brain. The assault is often cited in reports about a cluster of incidents perpetrated by the hate group Dotbusters, who specifically targeted any Patel or anyone wearing a dot on their forehead. Curb 4 Subway Station Queens, New York Of grey Concrete Rain damp Battleship water Sun. Print shop owner. Roommate. Gray. Of gray. Asphalt. Smoking bitumen. Wolfer. Traveler. Entrepreneur. Immigrant. Gray. Of gray. Wool. Undyed robes. Bristle collar. Quiet. An Indian Gregory Peck. Nice. Gray. Of gray. Grisaille. Still wet frescoes. Flesh of flesh. After drinks. After breakfast. After dinner. Gray. Of gray. Charcoal. Animal bones. White lead. Mm. A pigment. An immediate in-between. On December 27, 2012, Sunando Sen, a print shop owner and immigrant who had lived in the United States for 16 years, was pushed off the subway platform and onto the tracks of an oncoming 11-car number 7 train by Erica Menendez. After her arrest, she told the police, I pushed a Muslim off the train tracks because I hate Hindus and Muslims ever since 2001 when they put down the Twin Towers, I've been beating them up. Curb 5 High School Football Field, Lawrence Township, New Jersey to the brown boys on the bleachers, shaking their fists at the black girls on the turf. And? The brown boys on the bleachers, pointing their fingers at the black girls on the turf. And? The brown boys on the bleachers, climbing over each other to hurt the black girls on the turf. And? The brown boys on the bleachers, breaking their throats, screaming death at the black girls on the turf. The same sun that darkens our skin bleaches the cheap boards you stand on. You, a lackey to supremacy, feeling free, winning when you're boot-licking. We want to know who taught you, brothers, to want whiteness for your kin. Who taught you, brothers, to hate the dark flesh that you're in? One. Two. Three, four, 
In October 2019, at a sporting event, two 17-year-old high school students of Indian descent perched on bleachers menaced four black students, their peers, by screaming racial epithets and verbally threatening their lives. The young men of Indian descent were performing a familiar policing of space and black bodies. They were establishing their own roles as agents of white supremacy by producing anti-blackness. They were, as Nell Irvin Painter has argued, extending what sociologist Elijah Anderson calls the white space, even though the spaces in question are officially public. When South Asians perform anti-blackness as a form of a centuries-long aspiration to be white, we erase and destroy an equally long history of coalition between black and brown folk and fail to acknowledge our debt to civil rights processes that have guaranteed the relative freedom of daisies in the United States. Frequency, Alka's testimony for Serena Chopra. One. The rate at which something occurs or is repeated over a particular period of time. 2. The rate at which a vibration occurs that constitutes a wave, either in a material, as in sound waves, or in an electromagnetic field, as in radio waves and light. Originally denoting a gathering of people from Latin frequentia, crowded frequent. Three years after the death of her husband, Devyendu Sinha, Alka Sinha appeared at a courthouse in New Brunswick to offer testimony in response to the court's sentencing of the men who were responsible for his death. She began her testimony by playing a recording of Devyendu's voicemail greeting. She closed it by walking away from the podium. His recorded voice and her living voice were buried together in a soundscape of this courtroom. The duration of her entire testimony, documented in these ten sequences, was eight minutes. I'd love for all of you, briefly, to just tell us, or tell readers of this book, guide them, how are we to take the relationship between the poem and those notes, those prose notes. It's striking that the note comes after um, the poem. I think it would be a very different experience if it preceded that. So I think you, in the, these poems are about orientation. You know, they have these precise, what do you call these? Coordinates. Coordinates <laughs> in the corner. Um, so, and they have locations. So what are those coordinates? Are they, that's the place where the violence occurred? Yeah. Did any, any of you look that up? I yeah. didn't. You did, Piali. She did her homework also. Well, if I, if, I got, if I got it right, I'm not sure I'm a great reader of latitude and longitude, but if I am, then, then, then they are the specific coordinates of okay. where each of these All right. Happened. Go ahead, Joe. Oh, well, just to say that, so the, the, these poems are about location, clearly, you know, with the coordinates, and then you, you get the place, you know, the, the Gold Coast Cafe, Hoboken, New Jersey, in each case, but it's very 
disorienting the experience of reading the poem. So it's quite interesting to have the note come after. Mm-hmm. Tim, what do you think of about the relationship between the notes and the poems? Well, it's interesting because I, I actually taught this book to my students last semester, and we talked a lot about that question. And, you know, my students were really struck because in a lot of cases, they also often wanted to go to the note first, right? Because they wanted the explanation, you know, what's going on, what's being described. And I think it's really interesting because Victor's obviously choosing to, you know, push that kind of away from us and delay this kind of more narrative explanation. And instead, we get this much more this much more fragmented, even kind of lyrical evocation of what turn out to be these incidents of racist violence. So I, I can only interpret that as, you know, Victor wants us to kind of encounter them in this very estranging way first, in a way that kind of focuses on sort of a linguistic experience, a kind of, you know, often an, an experience of kind of repetition or of kind of unpacking of certain kinds of words. But there's, you know, there's obviously a kind of ominous sort of undercurrent in a lot of cases, and then the note kind of unfolds or reveals that. Piali, um, respond in any way you like, including possibly answering or responding to the question I'm about to ask you. Um, would we, know, following from, from Tim's experience in the classroom, would we know what happened uh, in each of these scenes of violence or prejudice without the prose note? You know, that's a really interesting question. You know, I was noticing that one of the blurbs for this book says about the poems that they have a fierce lyricism. And I think that, at least for me, I find that if I, if I really ask myself to concentrate on the lyric, I can make a guess as to what might have happened here. Not that I'm overly invested in poetry to what actually narratively happened. But, um, but I do think that these, the, the, the fierce lyricism, the lyric fragmentation, you know, all, all these words keep coming up. And I think that that is there for a reason. I mean, if we really choose to concentrate on the words, asphalt, smoking, grisale, animal bones, like there are lots of clues here for what it is that happened. And of course, the narrative is helpful in drawing a picture. But I wonder if the project of poetry is to draw such a clear picture always. Mm -hmm. Leading me to another question uh, for Joe and Tim, before we let Tim pick a poem to, to start with. Do the, because of the documenting, orienting prose tags, do the poems strike one as less documentary than they might be if they were just presented alone with the tag, in the case of Curb 3, Gold Coast Cafe, Hoboken, New Jersey, as an orientation, but without the prose? Would, would we feel the poem was documentary? The way it is now is it, we're challenged to think of the documentary quality as the prose note and the poems as something lyric that's not documentary. It's a complex question. I mean, I think this goes back to some earlier conversations we were having about what, what is documentary poetry. And I think Victor, you know, is exploring that question in a really, in a really interesting way. I, 
One thing that occurs to me is I, I feel that maybe the, the presence of the prose passage afterwards takes a little bit of the documentary weight off of the poem in the yeah. sense that we don't have to say, okay, you know, I, I mean, I think Piali is exactly right. We can kind of dig down into the poem and say, okay, you know, we can probably try to reconstruct, but these seem to be two kind of parallel approaches to an event or an occurrence or of evoking some kind of experience. And um, I, I do think lyric, lyric is still the right term here, that we have a lyric that is doing kind of what lyric does in parallel to a prose evocation that does what prose does. And so, um, you know, maybe that does make this less of a kind of documentary poetry mm -hmm. and more of a kind of this is a lyricism that is still grounded in the same event. Joe? I mean, maybe I'll add, you know, the, the notes are quite complicated on their own, and they offer a lot of contextualizing, you know, the dot busters, you know, so you're getting, you know, the, the comment by the assailant, um, uh, Nell Painter, you know, so you're actually getting quite a lot of contextualization in the note, uh, which on the one hand, I think from what you're saying, Tim, it kind of frees the poem in an interesting way, but also these poems are so focused and sensory, you know, like the first one is, or how I might read curb three is like how it feels, curb four is how it looks, you know. So hmm. I think it it kind of, you get this kind of, I mean, that's what lyrics do. They offer kind of heightened sensory, sometimes, you know. Yeah. And so I think it's able to do that in a very compelling way. Tim, pick one that we can focus on together. Well, I... I guess I would start with Curb 3 just because, and one thing that I really struck me was I'm so glad that we had Victor reading the poems because the experience of hearing her reading really gave me a very different sense of the poem. I mean, just, just to be, you know, one thing is that looking at the layout of the poem on the page, um, I did not read the poem kind of across the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the page break, but Victor read straight across. So we got pushed and pulled, and then we go over the page break out of the center. I, I thought I was kind of reading this side and then this side. Mm -hmm. And then having the two alternating voices, you know, having two different voices actually read, um, you know, the, the, uh, the sort of Roman versus italicized sections. So I was really fascinated by that play of voices, but also the way in which it kind of makes the, it's a visual poem. And, you know, mm -hmm. and it's one that's kind of being read as if it were kind of scored for the voice in a certain way. So I, I think that also expands what the poem is doing even beyond kind of conventional lyric and saying, okay, you know, this is a visual poem where things are placed in a certain way. This is a musicality where we've got two different voices playing off of each other. So those are the things that really jumped out at me from hearing the reading. Thanks, Tim. Great start. So Joe Piali, what... Can we figure out what those two voices are? Um, this, this particular scene of violence goes back to 1987, and it is a locus classicus of anti-Asian violence, is often cited in reports. So that might help us with this double-voicedness. It might help us understand the form of the poem. Joe Piali, thoughts? Uh, well, uh, Al, you said the word double voice, um, and I was thinking about that because when you said double voice, I thought, 
actually, the place where the poem is really lives for me is in the word dot busters. Because for me, that, and this might be specific to a South Asian American person who grew up on the East Coast, but that the word dot busters lives for me neither in my memory, I wasn't old enough, nor did I have to look it up. It lives in my body memory as something that my mother was terrified of when I was growing up in New York. Terrified and, for you and for herself. And for herself, absolutely. And you were, gosh, um, probably 40 minutes at most from Hoboken. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so um, a- as a result, um, I think that for, for me, when I read that, no, and, you know, again, when I read the poem, I think I had a, a sense of what was going on. And then when I read the note, this was one of the notes that really sort of hit for me in a way that I was like, okay, so this is, this is a world that I have like a bodily memory of, and therefore it makes, a, if not a mind memory of, and therefore it makes a lot of sense to me, this idea of pushed and pulled out of the center, and then the second voice there coming in to, to sort of say, okay, what's doing the pushing and pulling? Um, what, are, what are the objects there and are they objects of menace? Thank you. Joe? Yeah, I mean, again, like Tim, I'm just, the reading is a revelation. I mean, first of all, she's such a beautiful reader, but, you know, to read across the page, it's 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 actually very... Obviously, it, it, it feels kind of sustained. And then what you realize is that he hanging out at the far end is much different than what you thought as like a collection of he's at the end, right? I mean, you see that it's kind of threading through that he in the poem. He is more menacing as a pronoun with the way it was performed here than otherwise? Or it's connected in a way, you know, because I, I, I thought, you know, the way you, I read it the way you did, Tim, you know, it's like he was, he remembered, and he to the ground, you know, it becomes a kind of concluding thing. But when it's, when it's threaded through, yeah, it's, I don't know, it, yeah. it's a surprising difference. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and I do think it creates a different kind of continuity. You know, he remembered a man mm-hmm. described as bald. And he slumped to the ground. You know, so that it, it does. I mean, interestingly, it creates a little bit more of a narrative. Um, but at the same time, it also, you know, it, it does put the he in a um, in a different context. I mean, I'm, I'm still thinking through like what's the relationship between the italicized words that mm-hmm. here were voiced in, you know, in a different voice than in um, the the Roman words. Let's close read one of the italicized phrases. We don't, despite Poem Talk being a close reading podcast, we don't really do that much down at the level of the line, but I think it <laughs> might be, this might be the moment. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'm going to go from, and he, near the end, on the right, mm-hmm. on the recto, and he, and then this is the phrase I'm hoping we'll work on, a sound made mm-hmm. when a name falls from a face. So if you're reading quickly and thinking about the scene of violence, you're thinking of someone falling with his face to the ground. But that's not what is said. So who wants to start on this? Yeah. Joe? And you know, um, kind of a basic, you know, when a name falls from a face, when you lose particularity and you become a face, you know, a mass, a peril, um, that's what I see. But that that line is so striking if you compare it to the other lines in um, 
italics, like described as, described as, right? And that you get like reporting after the fact, right? It was an object described as, a path. So it's actually incorporated some of the the tone of the note that follows, you know, into the into the poem, but a sound made when a name, you're, that, that's not, that's, it's, it's both more immediate, but less, you know, there is no sound for that, you know, but it's told in that same kind of passive, you know, verb tense, but then when a name falls from a face is in that, that's, that's the active, you know, that, that's what happened at the moment of the attack is that you lost this particularity. Yeah, I, I think that Names end up being so crucial in this book. I, I think that, you know, my students and I also talked a lot about the kind of prefatory page where um, where Victor actually names, mm-hmm. uh, you know, several of the victims of this anti-South Asian violence and, you know, says very pointedly, uh, may their names never be forgotten and their names are listed. But what's interesting in it's these current poems, right, exactly. What's interesting in these curb poems is that in the the first section of the poem, the names are never given. They're withheld until the note. And then the notes begin generally by naming them. And so the idea of the name falling from the face seems to be that action which kind of, you know, de-particularizes, dehumanizes mm-hmm. them, and that then Victor is trying to kind of work against. Does it matter that we don't know who the witnesses are, who is giving this testimony. I mean, following from Tim saying that the mm. names have been stripped, both on the side of the victims and on the side of certainly the perpetrators and on the side of the witnesses, and presumably some of these people are witnesses. Well, it's interesting because I'm um, following from what you were saying about, Tim, about name. I mean, if you go back to the note, there is a name, it's Patel, you know, who specifically targeted any Patel. So, well, that's, But that's not naming a person. That's no. A, that's a genre almost. Exactly. Right? But that's what happened, you know, but you get the proper name is, on the one hand, you have the, the name of this, um, you know, murdered man. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get this kind of other, that's the name that he's been assigned. And then here, the assault is often cited in reports about, again, even in the note, they don't, it doesn't even say witnesses. You know, and how does the or function, Piali? It's it's a weird or. For those who don't know the specific politics, who specifically targeted any Patel or anyone wearing a dot mm-hmm. on their forehead? Well, the or is interesting because uh, if if I'm reading names correctly, and if I'm reading all the politics associated with names correctly. Navroz Modi would have been neither a Patel nor somebody mm. who wore a dot on, on their forehead. So uh, it would have been just a brown person. Um, and, and a so, Zoroastrian. And a Zoroastrian. Really, really marginal, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm assuming that the Patel is there because uh, in New Jersey at the time, the largest sort of number of, of South Asians that were there were probably Gujarati, probably of the Patel sect. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of Patel last names sort of floating around New Jersey at the time. Um, but the or, uh, anyone wearing a dot on their forehead, first of all, a dot on their forehead would have to be a woman. Um, and secondly, uh, again, that, that uh, it it makes no sense uh, for for Navroz Modi specifically, neither the Hindu part nor the dot part. Yeah, really. <laughs> okay, so let's go from a text from Curb where the name 
is not used in the poem, to frequency parenthesis Alka's testimony, which is the other three poems are from the curb sequence. This is a little different, although it does have a note. The poem is an abstraction, and the title of the poem is an abstraction with the parentheses meaning it comes from a particular person whom we are informed was a member of the victim's family and who later bore witness. The poem itself defines an abstraction, and yet it's directly connected to a very specific act of violence. All right, who wants to? <laughs> so it's quite a shift, although we have Alka. We have testimony. Presumably, Alka is telling us about frequency. I guess, Tim, your job, since you're the special guest, you came far from far away, <laughs> your job is to explain why Alka's testimony would be a definition, two different ones, of frequency. Well, you know, my students and I also did spend quite a bit of time talking about this poem and the, the sequence that it's, a, that it's a part of. And, you know, my understanding of what's kind of being portrayed here is that Alka Sinha is um, that her, you know, her husband was murdered. And so she, as her testimony, what's, what's fascinating about this is that, and I think why Victor's so fascinated by it is her testimony was not her own words. What she did was she played a voicemail message that had been left by her, or I think either his greeting or um, she she played his voicemail greeting. So in she court. Used, in court, as, you know, at the sentencing of um, you know of um, his his assailants, and um, and so she let his voice speak. But what's interesting is that Victor does not reproduce his words, nor does she use. Alka's own words really directly. Instead, she talks about kind of the sounds and the frequency of the sounds and like so the, this the is spaces. a reference to sound. Yes, yes, that's how I. I'm okay, let's it. let's just stipulate that. That's cool, and come <laughs> yeah. back to it. What are some other nominees for definitions of frequency? Sound for sure. Joe, you're on the spot. What else would frequency be? Well, it's she's very helpfully given us these definitions, um, you know, the rate at which something occurs. Meaning frequent violence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Piali, is there another sense of frequency? That, that, was, that was my I guess. It was this idea that um, if, if we're going to use the word frequency for this woman's testimony, a woman who has uh, had to live through the violence against her own husband and uh, is, is sort of performing uh, a soundscape for the court um, in response to that, um, that soundscape is also not existing in a world in which these, these things happen infrequently. Mm -hmm. And I'll add a fourth definition, then we'll go back to the first, because I think that's really important. Uh, the Latin definition, the, the etymology is sociality. Mm -hmm. And... As in, I frequented right. mm. that place, which is not really, um, I went often, although that's what we th probably mean when we talk about frequenting a restaurant or a favorite bar. But what we're really saying etymologically is that we go to see other people, to be with other people. We have a suburban home. This man was assaulted yard, mere yards away from his suburban home, which raises a question about whether 
a family, a brown family could f be okay in the suburbs, be safe, clearly, no. Not. The answer is, <laughs> you're, you, right? Isn't that the kind of nightmare that you're recalling as a... Oh, 100%. My, par I was, uh, my parents were living in Queens when I was born, and the, they and many of their friends frequented the suburbs uh, as soon as, mm. as they could afford to. And your family did as well at certainly, some point. Certainly, and, they, and because they felt that it would be safer. Um, and uh, there are many of us who would say, even if we have survived it, it wasn't. <laughs> but, um, but, but this is a, a much uh, more... Uh, clear example of the fact that this this was physically extremely to the to the maximum unsafe so as a fourth definition provided by her frequency is the sociality that can be the illusion of community and safety powerful stuff okay tim back to you on the sound do you mind yes yeah, so you know we were we were really interested in um, you know, why is Victor interested in, you know, not in like the, the semantic content of the sounds, but kind of in the mm -hmm. sound as a vibration or the sound defined as a frequency? And, you know, it's like we often say, okay, well, you know, a, a person's words, a person's testimony, like what they speak, that's, that's history. And in a lot of cases, um, you know, history can't be captured that way. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily have that person's words or it's not a transparent window into their experience. And Victor's saying, is there a way in which the, the vibrations themselves, the kind of pauses between the words, the spaces between the words, the frequency at which somebody's voice vibrates, like, can that tell us something? Uh, you know, how is that a window into an experience that's kind of lost or missing? So I, I, you know, I see that as part of what she, why she's interested in kind of frequency and vibration, because those are not semantic concepts. You can't tell what something means by measuring its frequency, but you learn something else about the quality of the sound. Mm. That, that seems to be what she's interested in to me. And this leads us, could lead us back to poetry as a medium, because poetry isn't just about what the, the semantic sense of what the words mean. It is about all those other things the sound and vibrations between and among the words, the voice speaking. I mean, poetry is sound. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, Joe, take us back. Your definition was frequency. The one you offered was frequency, meaning it keeps happening again mm -hmm. and again. Do you want to elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, um, well, on a basic level, these kinds of attacks have not let up. And honestly, if anything, they're much worse now. Um, although they're as pretty we record, bad. As we yeah. record in this yeah. period, right? Yeah, not. I mean, they've they've never gone away, and they've they've actually never abated. Um, but one thing that's quite striking here is that, in contrast to the curb poems, you get the note right away. You know, at the at the top here, and in that in in the way that Tim was saying that the poems themselves don't have to do all the reporting you know, in those other, you know, because there's a note coming after. In this case, we get the note first, and then we just get these sounds that I think um, kind of reproduce the experience of the courtroom, you know, so that we don't hear what anybody says, but mm. we get this very full audioscape of that courtroom experience. So you've actually merged the 
the two first definitions. Mm, the, true. The, yeah. yeah. Right. The frequency of the violence, mm-hmm. of the hate, hateful racist violence, and the sound that that frequency makes. So a kind of incoherent, coherent buzzing. There's a vibration going on yet again in that place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let us go to one of the other two curbs. Piala, you get to pick. It's either four or five. Then how can we not choose the man who was a print shop owner? Okay. Where would you like us to start? Why don't you ask a question? Um, well, I, I actually think, um, if I may, just actually uh, take off from uh, Tim and Joe's points about the frequency and testimony. Um, and which is actually connected to an earlier point you were making about who is the audience and who is the witness, Um, I can't seem to separate in my mind the fact that especially frequency, the poem, is happening inside a courtroom. The where of it really matters to me. Mm -hmm. Um, What is a court invested in if not recreating a very specific kind of history? Um, And therefore, the idea that... uh, sound vibrations can give a sense of a man that um, that maybe even uh, spoken histories or, or written histories or visual histories cannot um, very much matters to me in, in, in our reading of all of this, right? Because I think that if I'm to come to Curb 4 subway station, Queens, New York, um, I think uh, I, I have to remember that whether or not this particular poem is happening in the in the court or happening for the court. It is like the first curb poem was an act of witness, and it is us witnessing that witness um, in addition to anything else. Wow! So the poem, though it doesn't identify itself as coming from a particular speaker's subject position, is the witness. Can you give us an example of a phrase or word that? shows that? Um, I think that the, um, the violence in the poem um, is as important as the softness. And therefore, I think one of my favorite uh, sort of phrases is gray of gray, wool, undyed robes, bristle collar, quiet. Um, there's a softness there that is uh, rubbing up against the bristle, um, and that is, of course, juxtaposed with asphalt and mm-hmm. with wolf concrete fur and, and so concrete. Forth. Yeah. Yeah. And then a witness's statement, probably describing the victim, an Indian Gregory mm-hmm. Peck. Let's mm-hmm. go there, Tim. What do we do with somebody who says, you know, oh, it was terrible? He, what did he look like? Well, he was kind of an Indian Gregory Peck. You know, I, I, it's it's interesting. I mean, this sequence of words, quiet and Indian Gregory Peck, nice. I, I and think, gray also. But, well, and then, you know, but I mean, all of the things are kind of bracketed by of gray, gray. Mm-hmm. And so it almost seems like these descriptions kind of emerge from this grayness. They take on some kind of specificity and then they sort of fall back into this grayness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Indian Gregory Peck is, is a, I mean, it's a, it's a really striking um, description. 
it seems like, I don't know, this seems kind of like something that like your neighbors say about you or that like someone or some reporter is he trying to describe. He was always so nice. Why mm-hmm. would this happen to him? Yes, exactly. Exactly. He, th- their family was very quiet or, or something like that. Um, and, you know, the Indian Gregory Peck could have been something that someone said about him that was, you know, meant to be very kind of complimentary or show kind of like how handsome he was or, or something like that. Um, and it both... It's it's a it's a funny comparison because you know it both brings out a certain kind of individuality and yet it only defines him through this like famous white American actor right like you know he's an Indian version of Gregory Peck so it kind of marks him racially even if it's trying as it's trying to kind of distinguish him at least that's that's how that kind of strikes me well and that's kind of a perfect uh, metaphor for what that line is right I think when when I when I'm thinking of softness in in this particular poem um, I'm thinking of the model minority myth, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, oh, neighbors described, yeah, yeah, right. In, neighbors described him as quiet. Neighbors described right. him as nice, such a quiet, nice man. Um, this is the perfect Asian, right? Yeah. Like this mm-hmm. is the perfect Asian who never made noise and never rocked the boat. As if and it's never... more tragic if he is killed exactly right? by anti-Asian violence, yeah. as opposed to someone who is right. noisy. not model. Right. <laughs> I wonder, um, so what's so fascinating to me about this is such a painterly poem. It says grisaille, which I looked up, you know, as a method of painting in gray monochrome. And, re- we see and frescoes. Frescoes. Mm. We see an actual subway tile, right? Mm. And so here, I mean, this is a portrait of the subway and the subway station, gray of gray, battleship. You know, I, I can see, you know, the the animal bones. I see that in the subway, you know. I can't help but think of in a station of the metro. But, you know, like still wet frescoes, you know, yeah. petals on a wet black belt. You know, Absolutely, it's, it's hard right? For, so you see um, this kind of beauty emerge in the subway. But here you're getting the onslaught of the subway. Rain damp. Remember in a station of the metro it was like mm-hmm. wet, you know. Yes. So the rain damp, damp, the battleship water, gray, gray, of gray, gray. So it's... It, this is not mm. the flowers that emerge from the people's faces in the subway. Mm. This is a moment of brutality when a person is beaten into yeah. animal bone yes. right in the subway. But, but it is still an apparition. It is still an apparition. You, you're, you know. I think she's turning, Joe, the Poundian mode, that mode yeah. of, again, sociality. The, the Metro poem is about this amazingness mm-hmm. Of how I want I want to be a new kind of poet that can somehow capture the sociality of cr- a crowd of people that are attractive mm-hmm. to me, and I'm going to be like a painter. Here it becomes elegiac, so yes. it is the apparition of lost souls in a crowd. Absolutely, and this is an experimental elegy in the sense that it, and and what Piala has been saying is what causes me to say this in this way, it becomes a way of saying, I'm going to write an elegy of a place where this sort of thing could happen, the seven train mm-hmm. going into Absolutely. Queens. Because we have the unsafe space of the roadside diner. We have the unsafe space of your own suburban home. We have the unsafe space of the New York City subway system. And I'm, we mourn that space, Mm -hmm. and so I'm going to describe it. That is experimental elegy, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, now we get politically more complicated as we go to Curb 5. Does anybody want to try to say what the the extra complication here is? I mean, it's obvious, but it still needs to be said. 
Well, we're layering another race here. Yeah. Why does she include this? Because it really is so much less straightforward. Not that anything else is straightforward, but... Well, I have a lot to say about that. Well, <laughs> let's hear it. The, the floor is yours, Piali, please. Um, you know, I think just, if, if I can just be abstract for a second, um, I think one of the reasons why the Via Victor's work is so important to me um, is that I uh, have been spending a lot of time, um, especially, and because I teach... Uh, Asian American literature and Asian American creative writing and because I have a lot of heritage Asian American students and because I live in a lot of Asian American spaces, I think one of the things that has been so important for for so long, but also particularly in the last couple of years, is addressing uh, Asian anti-blackness and Asian violence against blackness. And that has been a space that I mean, it is really, if, if anything, it's, it's the space that we need to be talking about right now. And I think one of the things that Divya Victor's work reminds me of over and over again is that that happens because we are victims of the same thing. Like, I think that, that it's, um, it is sometimes easy to forget uh, when one is sort of like wanting to really deeply examine where sort of Asian anti-blackness comes from and, 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 and to explain to students like, hey, this is a real thing that happens and you need to believe it and you need to do something about it. Um, that uh, it's, it's easy to forget sometimes that like um, if you are an Asian person, like that, that is a violence that has been enacted upon you as well. And that that is why you are enacting that violence. And she even says in the note, um, you know, she has a whole note, a slightly lengthier note here about performance of policing and performance of violence. Um, but I think that this this book as a work of witness of uh, anti-Asian violence is very, makes it very clear to me where Asian anti-blackness comes from. And it just underlines that point in a way that I sometimes need reminding of. And so I think that's why this poem is in there. And my poems like to this do that, there. yeah. Tim, the structure of this thing is pointed it begins with two, it's an address, and then a lot of two, so two, two this, two them, two these, and then a colon, and now that must be the message. So first, maybe comment on the address, or as an option, comment on what comes after the colon, which is presumably the speaker's or Divya Victor's message, which complicatedly ends with five blanks that you're supposed to fill in because I guess you're supposed to learn the lesson yourself. Yes. Anyway. Yes. I, I, I do think, you know, the, the address of the poem is really striking, and it is a shift from the other poems. Well, you know, and, and to pick up on, you know, Piali's points, I think that that's exactly right, that Victor is very engaged in this conversation about anti-blackness in, in the Asian American community, and that that's why this poem can be addressed too, right? I mean, I think the other poems, they are, I think, you know, elegy is a great term for them. Poems of witness is a great term for them. Um, but they're not really addressed to, right? They're not sort of saying like, you know, you know, calling out like, you know, white assailants or something. That's not their, their mission. Here, I think it's in part because the speaker believes that there is a chance that the people she's speaking to will listen or hear this message because they are kind of within, you know, Victor's previous book is called Kith. And so I think a lot about that in terms of her work, in terms of who is Kith, like who is included in mm. the group that she wants to speak to and for. And this is a moment where, you know, on one hand, she's kind of 
speaking for and about a South Asian community. On the other hand, she's here speaking to other members of and that. And kin is a word used here. Yes, yes, poem, exactly. Right? And so that's a that's a recurring a recurring theme for her. And so I think that very direct, you know, like you, a lackey to supremacy. Mm-hmm. You know, she really, you know, if the, if there's any ambiguity in any of the other poems, there's none here. No, you know, it's very. Well, the only straight. ambiguity is the way it ends with those blanks. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's that's also a very characteristic move in Victor's poetry. I can think of other poems of hers from Kith, for example, where she uses that same kind of fill in the blanks mm-hmm. um, structure. You know. Who taught you to hate the dark flesh that you're in? But then Name she d- the five people who taught you. Right, exactly, exactly. Right? Is that and, what's you know, going on and, there? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because at some level, you know, the the answer kind of seems obvious, you know, sort of white supremacy. But then it's not at obvious at all in that, okay, but that white supremacy had to be kind of propagated by someone. It had to be, you know, people in our own community propagate that. that well, I'm going to overread this. Please. Because this is Lawrence, New Jersey, which is a quite wealthy place. And they're students. It's a high school football field. These are students. So the literal and overreading answer to who taught you are the teachers. Right. And this would probably be an all-white teaching staff. I'm probably going to get fan mail or not <laughs> the opposite of fan mail from Lawrence Township teachers. So what if we have white teachers teaching brown brothers to hate black brothers and there are five of them at the end we could name any of us maybe could name Mm -hmm. which is why there's such blankness there sorry i overread it but i really think that the location here since we've been focusing on locations and she directs us to go to the map and see where lawrence township is i mean it could even be lawrenceville famous private Mm -hmm. prep school absolutely yeah it i mean and it's also kind of noticeable there are five blanks this is curb number five you know, I kind. Of, I wonder. We have these. There are five bad, bad influences, but here you have five poems <laughs> that maybe you could learn from. But yeah. you know, I'm obviously I notice color in this one too. Just to state the obvious, it's a very narrow color range between brown and black. It's too bad that we don't see the connections between them. But the you know, obviously in this poem, as she says quite plainly, the problem between brown and black in this case is that brown thinks they can bleach you know, and get paler, right? Yeah. So, but I don't think that Erica Menendez and the other killers are in that list of five, Joe. No, no. Right? If those are the five poems, just the neat thing. Right, right, right. Five, yeah. Um, I think those are people who are un- uh, um, unwittingly teaching white supremacy to their brown students. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Piali, what do you think? I think it could also be the boys on the playground. I actually think it, it's it. We can we can overread as teachers. We can also overread as just the other kids. Who are the other? There are there are clearly kids who are on that playground who are not brown or black. Who are on on that field who are neither brown nor black. Who are on those mm-hmm. s- uh, bleachers and in those st- seats that are neither brown nor black. And for me, uh, uh, the overwhelming feeling I got was that. Uh, if it, the fill in the blanks are coming from the people that these brown boys are trying to impress, which is likely to be their peers. Mm-hmm. And we haven't talked about how the, the catcalling or racist boys are shouting at black girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Boy, we could, 
I mean, Tim probably spent a month on this book in his <laughs> class. So we could spend a month on this, but we don't have time less. So let us go for a round, each of us, final thought. What, what did you come here wanting to say about this book or these poems that you haven't had a chance to yet? We want to hear. So, Tim, what do you got? Well, you know, I, I'll go back one more time to the, the classroom and say that when I asked my students at the end of the term what, the, you know, their favorite book of the term was, the most powerful one, they, you know, largely named this book. And I, I think that, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with exactly this kind of dynamic between the, the two sort of parallel tracks that Victor takes, the kind of the lyricism and the, the kind of documentary narrative kind of juxtaposed and the kind of work that does. And a lot of my students said that um, the reason Victor seemed to spoke, speak to this moment is that you know, there was that kind of forthrightness. There was that kind of pointing to like the specificity of the political moment, even at the same time that Victor wants to kind of complicate and fragment and lyricize and elegize and do all those things that kind of poetry can traditionally do. At the same time, she says, you know, but remember their names. Remember where this happened. I'm going to tell you those things. Don't forget them. So I, I think that the reason, you know, the book for me is so powerful, not just as a kind of example, but as a method, is that it shows the way in which contemporary poetry can can do both of those things, can kind of powerfully bring kind of lyricism and political critique together. So that's a more general statement about the book's method, but I think it's it's really characteristic of what this book does well. Fabulous. Thank you, Tim. Joe, final thought? I'll just piggyback on what Tim is saying, you know, may their names never be forgotten from the opening note. I will say, you know, in this past uh, seasons of anti-Asian violence, I think there's been a real longing to have our own litany of names, to recite names as we do in Black Lives Matter protests. You know, like we say those names. We, we don't have that practice in the Asian American community. And it's actually really important. And often those names are harder to say. Yeah. And, but yeah, absolutely. So it's like, you know, we don't, we don't have that lit. I mean, I think, and, you know, in a lot of the talks and stuff I've given, you know, there's, um, th there's just one name that people know. And so like getting, doing that work of having these names out here, I think this is what poet, we can chant these names, you know, and that, I think that actually has, it, that's how we show that people, these people matter. Piali, final thoughts? I wonder if that chanting goes back to sound, Joe. Mm. Um, but I, I think uh, for, for me, the, the, the thing that I, I love about this work, this, this entire piece of work, um, is I think that one, one of my sort of writerly and readerly obsessions is uh, sort of creating uh, texture within immigrant communities, because I think one of the things that uh, gets erased a little bit when we use the word immigrant is uh, is how much uh, diversity there is even within the immigrant experience. And I think Divya Victor, though she's focusing on violence against South Asians, there are so many uh, textures of 
immigrancy that exists in this book. Um, even, you know, this idea that like uh, Zoroastrian would be neither a patel nor a dot on their forehead, or this idea that like, you know, um, the print shop owner uh, uh, hates Hindus and Muslims, and but but her name is Erica Menendez, which potentially could be a non-white person, you know, like that's, you know, there are so many different layers here of race and immigrant. Um, and I think that's one of the things that this book does so well is that it's talking about anti-Asian violence, which can sometimes be a kind of monolith and, and it's breaking it down into its little parts uh, via lyric and via sound and via, you know, like, um, you know, Tim was saying that it's part of the power of modern poetry. And I think that's kind of what she does here. Thank you. My, my final thought is, is somewhat obvious, but really a matter of stressing something that I find important in one of the notes, and that is the note to the last poem we discussed, with its reference to how South Asians perform anti-blackness as a form of a centuries-long aspiration to be white. And there's no further elaboration, and it doesn't take a lot to think about for anyone to learn to teach themselves what that centuries-old aspiration is is, of course, it has to do with European colonialism and settling. And the second part of that sentence is referring to the erasure and destruction of an equally long history of coalition between black and brown folk. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for all of us to spread wide our narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good, to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the literary world or the film world or the anything world. So, Joe, you always remember <laughs> to do Gathering Paradise. <laughs> what would you like to recommend? Well, I'm going to cheat today and choose what Tim... <laughs> so I'm going to choose from Tim's... Uh, um, really incredible work in recentering Janice Mirakitani. So I will recommend, and Tim shared with us there's a new reissue of Janice Mirakitani's poetry. And I think we need to return to that movement period of activism for um, Asian American poets, especially in, our, in a moment that's presented in Curb. I invite you to put a, a, an even wilder emphatic point on that. Because earlier today, you were just like very radical in the way you said that. Do you want to do, do, you want to do a radical version of what you just said? Well, I mean, it's... Time to I, do what? I should, yeah, well, to, to say Asian, to, that, that word Asian is a political solidarity, you know, to, to claim being Asian, not as a kind of ethnic description, mm. but as a radical and racial um, understanding a moment of solidarity thank you very much tim you final uh, sorry gathering paradise you've already done your final thought <laughs> this is a combo well actually the you know it, joe you kind of snuck in too there so i i think that you know i'll echo the you know so the university of washington press has put out this new edition of janice Mirakatani's first two books um awaken the river and shedding silence and i think having those books back in print is really uh, a remarkable moment and opportunity for us to kind of, uh, you know, go back to this radical tradition in, in Asian American writing. One that I think that, you know, in their very different ways, writers like Victor are trying to kind of continue. One that's kind of grounded in these sort of historical injustices and violence, but most importantly, maybe pointing to that coalition 
pointing to that mm-hmm. idea that, you know, these kinds of anti-racist, anti-imperialist coalitions are really what kind of Asian American identity writing politics is sort of grounded in. So I think Mirakatani is a great, uh, great writer to kind of remind us of that. Fantastic. Piali? Um, well, since we're talking about South Asians and since we're talking about New Jersey, um, I actually thought that uh, the the person who comes to mind and whose work has been coming to mind just over and over again since I read it uh, several years ago when it came out is Gayutra Bahadur's uh, nonfiction work called Coolie Woman, in which she documents her family's journey. Uh, they were indentured laborers um, in Guyana, uh, but they are uh, ethnically Indian, um, and uh, she documents her family's journey to, to the United States and to New Jersey specifically, but of course that that families uh, and families like it are very interesting in the sense that they were ethnically South Asian. They remained ethnically South Asian even throughout their long tenure in South America, and they to this day, uh, from what I can tell, remain ethnically South Asian. Uh, But speaking of, Alex, your earlier point, coalitions between brown and black people, I mean, when South Asian indentured labor was brought to South America, there was uh, an enormous amount of racism and also an enormous amount of coalition building between brown and black and Afro-Latin people. And there's, uh, Gayatra documents all of that tremendously and also goes into sort of like radical histories really beautifully and... um, Anybody looking at South Asia and New Jersey, I think, needs to read Gaitra's work. Thank you. Um, my Gavin Paradise, we have Tim Yu here, who is Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> and this paradisal friend of ours has a new book out, Diasporic Poetics. The subtitle is Asian Writing in the United States, Canada, and Australia, talking about Asian Canadian poet, Asian Australian poet, thinking about Asian American studies. It is a marvelous book. It kind of tries to, well, kind of is the wrong word. It redefines what Asian-ness might mean, at least in the poetic context. And it reflects on a certain pointed belatedness of the Asian Canadian or Asian Australian turn. Highly recommend it. It's put out by Oxford Tim. Congratulations on this book. It is amazing. Well, that's all the sound made when a name falls from a face we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House of the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Joe Park, Tim Yu, Piali Bhattacharya, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner. Zach, thank you. And to Poem Talk's editor, who happens to be the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be talking with Caroline Bergvall, Bethany Swan, and, ahem, Piali Bhattacharya about Sawako Nakayasu's book, Some Girls Walk Into the Country They Are From. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us next month for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>